Years ago when I was uh, first up, I, uh, I, I forgot my notes and then I was uh, so nervous. They all blurred and I couldn't read them. And uh, now they're upside down and this is a song. Those aren't my notes. And uh, <laughs> So here we go. We're going to be uh, moving through a whole series on being neighbors together. And one of the things that you probably are aware of is that um, you can go to any community in the country, walk through any neighborhood, and that neighborhood is going to have an individual feel to it. Would you agree? You know, and there are some neighborhoods that have a reputation. And maybe you were from a neighborhood at some point in time in your growing up years that had a reputation. Uh, Many times the reputation is, is this is the neighborhood with the greatly manicured lawns. This is the neighborhood with the no manicured lawns. This is the neighborhood with the manicured dogs, and this is the neighborhood with the junkyard dogs. You know, it just goes on and on. Sometimes our neighborhood isn't actually a neighborhood, but it's a community of people. I was laughing as, uh, and just kind of reminded as we were saying, hey, we're families, you know, and maybe it's Disney songs. And almost for, in a moment, I was transcended to this group of Marines that I was on a hardcore training hike with. And when you think about Marines, you know, there's the picture of people in the Marine Corps that you have in your mind, the way Marines look, and then I think, and then there's the Marine Corps that really is, the Marines that really are, which are young kids that are coming straight from home. So we're in the middle of this whole hike, and to pass the time in real manly voices, they, they strike out in this whole Disney song. And I am just stunned that they are singing this song. And, and the whole group, 100 Marines, if you can imagine this, with full packs on, singing, let's get down to business, it, all, all, all the way to, I'll make a man, out, and I'm laughing. They go, chaps, it's your turn. And I just laughed, and just really quickly, I just started, and they go, just test us. We know any song, you know, and I'm looking at it, you know, and I just, and I just laugh for a moment, and, uh, and then I just, I just let out, who is that girl I see? staring back, and they picked it up, and I couldn't even believe it. You know, so this is Marines out in the middle. You know, it takes, you know, there is communities where you would think in one moment, um, you know, there's a, there's a community that we think we're walking into, the community that we actually walk into. And sometimes there's a pressure to conform, and that's what we're going to talk about briefly tonight. You know, what will the neighbors say? Now, some of the conformity is great. You know, uh, sometimes it's keeping the lawns manicured, or sometimes it's the way that we watch out for each other's kids, right? But there are some pressures sometimes, I think, that come into our lives and into our neighborhoods, into even our Christian community, into our community with each other, that really is, uh, is not good. And there's a pressure, such a pressure to conform, that sometimes we, uh, we, we end up not being the people that God called us to be. There's a wonderful verse in Scripture where Paul says, to the Jew I became a Jew, to the Greek I became a Greek, I became all things to all men that I might, what? Win more to Christ. And it's this idea of saying, I am who I am, and as I come into the community, I'm looking for a way to match you, looking for a way to get to know you. But a lot of times it's the opposite. If you're a Jew, if you're a Greek, if you're whatever, you've got to be like me. And sometimes even within the Christian community, there is a pressure for us to envelop, for us to embrace a certain rendering of Scripture. And in our own minds, we're thinking, that's not quite the heart that Christ has for me or for this church or for us to be together. Over these uh, next uh, four sessions, we're going to talk about what will the neighbor say, getting off the performance track. And uh, in your neighborhoods, how many of you have had to deal sometime at some point in time with a crazy neighbor? 
Have you done that? How many of you have been the crazy neighbor? Okay, we're going to talk about that. You know, how many of you have had neighbors with fences, you know, and you ever thought, man, I just got to get over that fence, you know, jump on the neighbor's fence, and we'll talk about that. And then, um, oh, that neighbor, um, you know the one, right? And so we're going to talk about that neighbor, maybe the one that nobody else is approaching, or others are considering anathema, or, or, um, or maybe are so deep in trouble that you just don't even know what's going on with them. And so it's, it's four ways. But we're going to begin with ourselves, because sometimes there's that idea, what would the neighbors say, and especially my neighbors in the church, if I was really the person that God wanted me to be? I can't tell you the level of conformity that we're often called to, and sometimes it even calls us away from, I think, the call of Christ in our lives. And so if we're going to be a community together, you know, one of the things that I think is so important to, uh, to decide and to speak about is to be that person that God wants us to be, to get off the performance track. And the performance track can be the keeping up with the Joneses, and the performance track sometimes can be an outward um, expression of what we think the faith is supposed to be. All right? Now, sometimes going along with the neighborhood is a good idea, right? We're supposed to set an example. And Paul himself in the scripture says, follow me as I what? As I follow Christ. But there's a little opposite there. Don't follow me as I'm not following Christ. And so sometimes we need to have some wisdom and to say, is that really of Christ or is that of culture? And that's an important question to ask. Because no matter what congregation we're a part of, no matter what community we're a part of, there's going to be a culture that, uh, you know, that goes along with it. And, uh, and I find that true no matter where, where I am. Going along with, uh, with the culture, sometimes when it's positive and when it is following others as they're following Christ, that's a good idea. But sometimes, uh, what will the neighbors say is a bad idea. Um, because what's going on in the neighborhood isn't something that I want to be a part of, right? So I want to give us some examples of good ideas and bad ideas before we hit the scripture. Good idea, of course, is, uh, is eating healthy, right? And uh, that's a good idea. And uh, the following would be a bad idea. Yeah, and that's the way a lot of us eat half the time, you know, junk food and, and everything right there. Here's another good idea. A, a good idea would be uh, lifting weights, right? Being in shape. Here's a bad idea. Sometimes you don't get to see the whole picture until the frame goes back and you're thinking, that's not wise. That's a disaster in the making. Here's a good idea. All right, energy efficient, you know, ready to go, ecologically sound, bad idea. <laughs> Paul, that's your next car, isn't it? <laughs> All right, here's a good idea. All right, 4th of July, fireworks, you know, safe and sane, the date is coming up real quick. Here's a bad idea. <laughs> what cracks me up is that was somebody's real idea, and uh, so let's take a picture of this. <laughs> Next slide. Here's a good idea. You know, church, it's a welcoming place. Here you go. Uh, here's a sign out that makes, makes you think maybe you'd be welcome here. Here's a bad idea for your signage. <laughs> that is a real sign. <laughs> Next slide. Good ideas and bad ideas. <clears throat> there is a text in um, in Revelation. I mean, I'm sorry, in Galatians chapter three, and you just heard the text a moment ago. And sometimes there are texts that we hear again and again. Oh, foolish Galatians! How many of you heard that text? A lot of you have read it. Who has bewitched you? And sometimes we see and we hear the text 
um, so many times that it becomes familiar. But we have to remember that some of these letters were actually written, of course, to a church in their language, in their time, and it was hard-hitting. There is a rendition of the uh, New Testament called The Message. Uh, Eugene Peterson, have you, have you read some of it? Some of the passages are just exceptional. And Galatians chapter 3 is exceptional. So let me share it with you in a way that's just a, a little bit more in your face. Okay? You ready? This is a good idea, bad idea passage in terms of how to live your life as a neighboring community. It begins this way. You crazy Galatians! Did somebody put a hex on you? Hex, hex. Have you taken leave of your senses? Are you nuts? Something crazy has happened. For it's obvious that you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough. Let me put the question to you this way. How did your new life in Christ begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God? Or was it by responding to God's message to you? Are you going to continue in this craziness? For only crazy people would think that they could complete by their own efforts what was begun by God. If you weren't, I love this line, if you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose that you could perfect it? How many of you run into Christians that are trying to do just that? And I certainly have. Oh, what's wrong with you? All right? To perfect it. Did you go through this whole painful learning process for nothing? It is not yet a total loss, but it certainly will be if you keep this up. Answer this question. Does the God who lavishly provides you with his own presence, his Holy Spirit, working things in your lives you could never do for yourselves, does he do these things because of your strenuous moral striving or because you trust him to do them in you? Don't these things happen among you just as they happened to Abraham? Abraham believed God and that act of belief was turned into a life that was right with God. Isn't it obvious to you that persons who put their trust in Christ, not persons who put their trust in the law, are like Abraham? They're the ones that are children of faith. It was all laid out beforehand. So now those who live by faith are blessed. Listen, Scripture utterly backs this up. It says this, Cursed is every person who fails, cursed is every person who fails to carry out every detail written in the book of the law. The obvious impossibility of carrying out such a moral program should make it plain that no one can sustain a relationship with God this way. The person who lives in a right relationship with God does it by embracing what God arranges for him. Doing things for God is the opposite of entering into what God does for you. Habakkuk had it right. The person who believes God is set right by God. And that's, and that's the real life. Rule-keeping Rule-keeping does not naturally evolve into living by faith, but only perpetuates itself in more and more rule-keeping. A fact observed in Scripture, the one who does these things, rule-keeping, continues to live by them. So here's what Christ did. He redeemed us from that self-defeating, cursed life by absorbing it completely into himself. 
You remember what Scripture says? It says this, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He became a curse and at the same time dissolved the curse. And now because of that, the air is cleared. And we can see that Abraham's blessing is present and available for non-Jews too. We are all able to receive God's life, his spirit, in and with us by believing just the way Abraham did it. See, there's these good ideas and these bad ideas. And one of the key good bad ideas is the following, returning to human effort versus the Spirit's guidance. Do you remember when you first met Christ? There wasn't anything that you had to offer him, anything that he needed. You know, there wasn't a sense that, uh, that, that, that you were good enough. Do you remember that moment? Uh, I, mean, I remember that. You know, a sense of just, I, there's nothing else I can do. You know, and somehow that's how we embrace. And then the joy is just bouncing us off the walls. But so many times we do the crazy thing. This is a good idea, the bad idea. We move, and part of it's our culture. We move from the good idea of trusting Christ's grace alone and letting that empower our lives to doing what? Moving straight back to, to the law, to human effort. Galatians 3, 2 and 3 says this. How did this new life begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God? Or was it by responding to God's message to you? Here's the thing that I know. Um, if you're like me, I like order and control. I see on the, um, I see on the docket that we're going to start the evening with icebreakers, right? And I'm immediately what? Nervous. Why? I have no idea what the icebreaker is going to be. Then I get a slip of paper telling me I have to be a zoo animal. Now I'm really nervous. I like order and control, you know? And now all of a sudden I'm going to be everybody's entertainment. And I don't even know what it's going to be, you know? And so there we are in the middle of our order and control in these great little pictures that will go up on Facebook so the whole nation can see them. And uh, we'll lose control over that. There is a sense that we like order and control. But here's the thing about grace. It is, it is out of control. It's out of this world. And when we come to know Christ, all of a sudden, the sense of total control that we had in our lives goes away. Why? Because it, we're called upon to do what? To surrender, right? And to give it all. That's, that, that's the call. And in so doing, the scary thing really happens. I lose control. But we're human beings. And sometimes in our community, the moment that we've um, given up our control and now we're moving forward with Christ, we want everybody else to be in control with us. And so we'll start to grasp back at the, at the law and the rules and conformity. Here's the deal. When we surrender to Christ, along with that comes surprise. So much of our life is being on this performance track. Do, 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 and be, and be, and be. And finally, we look at ourselves in the mirror, and the day comes when we just look at God and just cry out in exasperation, I can't do it. And God comes back, I don't know, but I can. Will you give your life to me? Okay. We hand it to him, and then we do the crazy bad idea thing. Instead of moving forward, continuing the Spirit's guidance to say, what new thing do you want me to be? How do I move in this situation? What does it mean to be a new creation? We begin immediately to move back toward what's comfortable, and that's my human effort. There are so many people that think, you know, if I just go to one more Bible study, if I just pray one more time, if I just do this one more time, then all of a sudden it's going to be all right with God. And the reality is, is it's never going to, it's never going to be enough. One of my favorite hymns uh, comes from um, the early American church, and it says this, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded by the fall. If you wait, if you tarry till you're better, 
you will never come at all. And uh, there's this idea with me that says, I'm just, Frank Riley is never going to measure up. He is never going to measure up. I'm going to let you down. I know, it's inconceivable, right? Yeah. I know, it's, uh, it's unconscionable. You know, but the reality is, is that I will. And the moment that any of us are so looking in the mirror that says, I've got to measure up, at that moment in time, we've lost the power of the Spirit. And we'll be talking about that more in the next few days. I think sometimes in our life, we run this holy tally board, right? I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I blew it. Oh, back to the tally board. And God basically says, your tally board, you're always going to come up losing. You are not, we're in the World Cup right now, you're not going on to the next round this way. This isn't how you go. I'll take you into the next round, but you've got to throw away the tally board. So many times we talk about you know, our righteousness and sins, um, and it's something that I've come to realize. The Bible says that our righteousness, every good thing that you do, is as what? Filthy rags, right? Our righteousness by itself is that filthy rags. The only thing that makes us acceptable is Christ working through us, right, to make it acceptable. So anything good, I can't take credit for, Right? And so it's just a drop in the bucket. It's real tiny. But God is infinite. And sometimes with regard to our own sin and failings, we forget this. In the same way that my righteousness is just a drop in the bucket, as big as my sin may seem, because he's infinite, it is also a drop in the bucket. Have you ever thought about that? No matter who it is in your neighborhood, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, whatever it is that you've done, It's a drop in the bucket compared to God's amazing love, his spirit, his redemption, his price for you. But also, if you can get that straight, his price for your neighbor, his price for the person right next to you. So the question is, is do you have that kind of heart? Here's another good idea, bad idea. The good idea, of course, is believing in grace, right? The bad idea is embracing law. Galatians 3, 11 and 12, we read it a few moments ago. There is this obvious impossibility of carrying out such a moral program. It should make it obvious that no one can sustain a relationship with God that way. The person who lives in right relationship with God does it by embracing what God does for him. And then verse 12, rule keeping does not naturally evolve into living by faith. Did you catch that? Rule-keeping does not naturally evolve into living by faith, but it only perpetuates itself in more and more rule-keeping. Now, most of us would say in our communities, yeah, I believe that. I believe that 100%. You know? Let's reach out for grace. I believe in grace. If you were to talk to most churches, you know, it's, hey, do you believe in grace? And they would all say, yes. But what I think we believe in so many times when it comes to the church is we believe in something that I call initial grace. And initial grace is that grace that is, that is given, that is offered to the person who is just coming to faith for the first time, right? Just as I am without one plea, right? Everybody come on down. The buses will wait, you know, and the mass of humanity comes. You know, who wants to accept Christ today? Raise your hand, you know, and that person is feeling freed up. And it's like, oh, Jesus, from now on, I'm going to live for you. And that's initial grace. 
And we are really good in the church of offering, I think, initial grace. But are we really good at enveloping grace, the real thing for ourselves? We tell each other, how much of your sins did Christ pay the price for? All of them. What does all mean? It means all. All past, all present, and all what? And all future. And we know that academically. But the way that we treat each other and the way we speak to each other and even ourselves, we're not buying that. See, we buy initial grace, but we don't buy something that I call subsequent grace. Here's my initial sin, but what about everything that follows? What about all the other times that I'm going to fall, fall down? What about all the other times that I'm going to trip up? What about all the other mistakes that I'm going to make? And not just that, but do I believe in initial grace? I believe in initial grace for you, but do I believe in subsequent grace for you as well? And so many times in the church with our neighbors, we're just so harsh. And what ends up happening is as we're harsh with others, those others stop believing in subsequent grace and buy in to the rest of the neighborhood. But there needs to be somebody to raise a hand to say no. You get up. You're redeemed now. Come on, go forward. You can make it. What will the neighbors say? They'll say, you're too easy on sin. No, I'm not. I still believe there's a standard, but I believe there's a greater gift, and that greater gift is grace. Far beyond, as the old hymn says, far beyond all my guilt, all my sin, and all my shame. I don't know if you know that It's not a new concept. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was in this uh, class, and, uh, you know, and there were a couple of people. I've been taking this clinical MA class. That's a medical assistant class. And I'm kind of doing prerequisites right now to potentially be a physician's assistant. Um, when I was in Afghanistan, I'm bouncing around with all these forward surgical teams, and I re-realized the love that I had for science and for medicine. So I'm thinking about becoming this, this PA, and everybody's looking at me like I'm crazy. And so, and so Jenny and I, we've kind of been separated this last year a bit, because Monday through Friday, I've been living down here at Navy Base San Diego. And uh, so what I decided to do is, rather than twiddle my thumbs in my, um, in my room, I decided that I was going to sign up for this medical assistant program. So from 5 to 10 p.m. every night, Monday through Thursday, I was doing that. And then Friday night, from basically um, 5 to 10 p.m., I was in an anatomy lab um, taking college anatomy class. It was a little bit crazy. It was a little bit more than I should have taken in. But, <laughs> but, but I, was part of this, I was part of this whole new community because to take the clinical MA class, I was part of adult school. So I'm going to adult school. I mean, you want to talk about a brand new community of people that I have never been with before. You know, none of these people have, uh, have, have uh, bachelor's degrees. None of these, most of these people don't have their community college degrees. They're kind of starting through it, but they're all sitting here going to adult school. So I'm in this whole group, this adult school group. And it was amazing. I had people from, uh, you know, I had people from Kurds, I had Kurds and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and Pakistanis and just people from all over the world and, and all these different uh, conversations. So I'm overhearing this conversation and this person saying, okay, I'm Catholic, we're going to go get baptized. Well, what happens when you get baptized? The Muslim's asking. Well, um, well at that point in time, it's, I'm hearing this brand new fresh conversation going across the room and they're saying, well, you know, um, I'm, you know we're washing away all my sins, you know, and, uh, and that's great and, you know, I'm purifying myself and, and so far so good. And then the other person who's not a Christian says, well, what about any sin that you're going to do after that? And the person just stops and goes, I don't know. <laughs> now, I'm listening to this thing. And so the Muslim comes back and says, well, wouldn't it be better to wait until the end of your life to get baptized then? <laughs> and, uh, and I'm listening to this. And so the person comes back and she goes, yeah. 
wow. You know? And, uh, and I'm thinking, okay, here's somebody who's unclear on the what? On the concept. But I'm thinking, you know what? This is the way that most of us live. It's the way most of us live. In the, in the third century, a great emperor by the name of Constantine proclaims that the Roman Empire, for the first time, will be Christian. And so Constantine is the first Christian emperor. Now, what most people don't realize is while he proclaimed the empire Christian, while he converted to Christianity himself, he waited until he was on his deathbed to get baptized. Why? Because he was worried that, um, that as an emperor, as a leader with that much power, that if he was baptized at the point of coming to faith, that he would sin again and wouldn't be redeemed. I think sometimes we live, right? We live with that kind of fear. How many of us have seen that altar call and understood that since that time we've really blown it and we weren't living for Christ the way we wanted to, that we've kind of, that we've kind of uh, made some mistakes along the way? How many of us have wished maybe, oh, wouldn't it be great if I could go for an altar call today and, and a fresh start to, to convert to faith all over again? And part of that is our culture that doesn't allow that subsequent, that doesn't allow that subsequent grace. See, God already knew where you were going to be, and he knew where your neighbor was going to be, and he knew the whole backstory and all the hurt and everything that was going to lead to it, you know? And sometimes in our lives, we've got to be gracious with our people that way and say, come on, um, you can make it. Now, here's what I wrote in my notes. I said, looking at others graciously can remind you of God's grace for you. One of the things that I know in my life is that as I think about being gracious toward others, I somehow become more and more convinced that maybe, just maybe, God will be gracious to me. Because I understand that my heart is in no way even close to God's amazing heart for people. And I find myself thinking, and I've heard some crazy stories, you know, and I could tell you crazy stories about me. And you might be sitting here going, what's he even doing in front of us? One of the things that I know about myself is I've always said this. If I look at myself in the mirror too long, stick a fork in me, I'm done. You know, I know the man that I am. I know the darkness in my heart. I know the darkness in my thoughts. I know what I'm capable of. I know after living with Marines and sailors for a couple of years, I know the crazy words that go squirming around in my head and every now and then slip out. And I just think, you know, if you're, looking for the, if you're looking for the pastor, you know, that is just absolutely modeling everything in perfection, I'm not it. But if you're looking for the person who's saying, you know what, I believe in Christ's grace for it all, you know, that's, that's what the world is looking for. How we apply grace to others, I believe this, tells us what we believe of it. Did you catch that? How we apply grace to others tells us what we believe about grace. Jenny and I were living in Minnesota and there was this Lutheran church. Remember that Lutheran church? It was hilarious. And uh, they, were, uh, they were part of the free Lutheran um, denomination. That was their denomination. We'd never heard of it before. Have you ever heard of it? I'd never heard of free Lutherans. But anyway, that's what they were, free Lutherans. And uh, which sounds like kind of a, I don't know, sounds like, sounds Sounds like an oxymoron, free Lutherans, I don't know. But, uh, but anyway, so there's these Lutherans, and the free Lutherans, you know, and the name of their church, their name of the church was Grace Church, right? So it was Grace Church, and they had a sign made, and whoever was in charge of the sign, or, 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 or the sign company, it had to have been from the church itself, somebody didn't edit the sign right, didn't look at the way the sign was laid out. 
And so when the sign went up in front of the church, it went up this way, grace-free Lutheran church, <laughs> meaning no grace here. And I looked at that, and we just, we're just busting up. This is like the joke of the town. That's grace-free Lutheran church. You know, if you're legalistic, man, you might want to go over there, you know. And, uh, and, and, uh, and these poor guys, they had this, and they probably spent, I don't know, $10,000 for their marquee. So there they are, grace-free Lutheran church. And uh, had I remained at Plymouth Covenant much longer, I think I would have gone together to all the other churches and said, let's give grace-free a present, unless that's really who they are. You know, let's take up a collection, um, gracious as we are, and change their, you know, and change their sign. And I mention that because for many people that aren't in the church, that is the marquee that they see when they think of us. Grace-free. There won't be any here. Um, not in my neighborhood. Not next to me. Because I don't dress the way they do. I don't look the way they do. You know, any number of things. For me, I look at myself and I say for us to be with a within our own selves. We need to be able to look past whatever the sin is, whatever the hurt is, and into the heart of the person. And sometimes we need to look past the outward um, vestiges of how people are presenting themselves and understand there's a deeper um, reality there. One of the things that I love and I've always loved is spending time around little kids. You know, I've always said, you know, if I lose the ability to talk to a two or three-year-old, I've lost the ability uh, more than anything, probably, to be a pastor in a church. And the reason is, is because I've lost my child's heart. One of the things about two- or three-year-olds that saddens me is I see these two- and three-year-olds all running and playing and having a great time together, right? And then, um, and then I think about what is awaiting them out into the future, the challenges, and how their faces and their dress and everything will change and how people will begin to judge them. And I think right now you find a safe and a good haven within God's people. But can I still say that when you're 16? I don't know whose kid it was. I try to remember whose it was. I think it might have been your little one. Um, but there's this little one tonight. We're eating pizza, and she's all happy and stuff. And all of a sudden, just pulls her pants down, you know. And, uh, and, uh, and everybody got all upset, and they're just running over. You're going to get those pants up. And I'm laughing at the table, and I'm thinking, that's fine now. Don't do that when you're 16. Our little girl was the same age, and it's all raining in the backyard, you know, and she's coming, Mommy, Mommy, you know, can I go run outside naked in the rain? And uh, Jenny looks at Cora, our little girl, and says, Why not? How much longer are you going to be able to do that? You know, and too soon, you know, we purge innocence, or too soon we call what is, um, what is innocent something else, you know, and we always have to be ready and, and able to go to the heart. Here's another uh, good idea, bad idea. And this is the worst of them all. Trading curse versus trusting promise. Trading the curse for the promise. All who rely, Galatians 3, 10 and 14 says, all who rely on observing the law are what? Under a curse. You want to do it your way? By definition, you're what? Under a curse. I'm going to be on the tally board. By definition, we're all, all of us, under a curse. But, this is the great news, he redeemed us so that all by faith might receive the promise of the Spirit. We pray the, uh, the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? Give us our daily bread. And then there's this line. You remember this line? And forgive us our 
debts or our sins or our trespasses, just as we what? Forgive those who trespass, sin, or are in debt to us. And when I was a kid, I would see that as a threat. Man, if I don't forgive you, man, I'm doomed. I don't think that's why it's there. I think God already understands that we're going to have a problem with it. But here's the deal. As I forgive others, then I start to believe in forgiveness for myself. As I start to practice grace, no matter what everybody else is doing in the community, as I start to practice grace, I am the person who begins to have the heart of the Father in the community, in the neighborhood. It's me. So many times we look at this and we go, man, I just, uh, you know, I want what I deserve, you know. I, I've done well and I've won this honor, you know. That's kind of how our society works a little bit. But let me tell you, when it comes to my actions and when it comes to yours, how many of you want what you deserve from God? I don't want what I deserve. No, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> but that's okay. I appreciate your honesty, man. It's just really great. <laughs> Hey, you know what, though? We live that way. I want what I deserve. I'm better than those people. I'm measuring up. But the reality is, is all my righteousness is what? It's just a, it's just a drop, right? That's all it is. And I'm thinking, the, what I deserve, that's the last thing I want. Man, I want what I don't deserve, which is, which is grace. Because the moment I get what I deserve, I'm doomed. I don't want it. You know, I want what Christ purchased for me, which is absolutely the last thing that I deserve. And I think so many times within our neighborhoods, together, we need to remind others of that promise. That it's not about do and do and do. It's about grace and grace and grace. It's about getting up again. It's about starting again. It's about saying you can do it. It's about saying, I still believe in you. It's about saying <clears throat> that his grace is sufficient for every single one, um, every single one of our needs. And that's, the, um, you know, and that's the kicker there. So now we have this. Christ redeemed us from that self-defeating curse, cursed life, by absorbing it completely into himself. There are many people who think that it's all about rules and rules and rules and rules. But I know this, that as we begin to truly understand the love of Christ, that looks straight to the heart of people, that understands our pain and our struggle, that as it becomes a safe place to do that, then in that moment, God has the ability to change not only others' lives, but ours as well. We're living in a world right now, one of the things that I know is I'm running, I run into this all the time. People who are saying, man, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to be anywhere near that. And most of the time it's because they don't feel like they're good enough. And somehow, I don't know how this happened, somehow in our Christian culture, we began to project that somehow we were good enough and the outsiders weren't. And the thing that makes all the difference in the world is to say, no, there's only one who's good and good enough. And it's, and it's him. And you're welcome here to come and struggle and know and discover. For me, I know that that discovery takes place in layers. Are you still discovering Christ? 
I still discover his grace in new ways all the time. You know, I still discover him in, in so many ways. The other day I was commenting um, to someone and I said this, um, I really thank God and I'm so grateful that Jesus is my savior and not his people. Because if it were his people, I would be doomed. We're so harsh. And somehow in our own world, we have to say, you know what? I'm going to stop doing the crazy thing. As Paul said, who put a hex on you? Who bewitched you? Are you nuts? And the answer comes back so many times, yeah, we are. <laughs> and the reason is, is because law and rules is so much easier. It's clear, right? Grace is messy, but it's really cool. And it's powerful. And it's something that we don't control. Because the one who created the universe, who knows every heart and every struggle, is the one that is master and redeemer of it all. Aren't you glad? So, as we begin our travel through the neighborhood, let's begin by, um, by, by giving each other permission to say, you know what? I am going to grab onto grace and lead with that, not only for myself, but for others. Understanding that my natural tendency will be to run toward the law. I often wonder what would happen if there was a church that was radically running to grace. Not for themselves only, but for everyone. Um, it might be a very unique place to be. And also a very safe place. By the way, grace doesn't mean that we trade off you know, God's precepts and his directives for our life. But what it does mean is we give each other room to struggle, right? And an understanding that it's not our actions that redeem us ever, but his blood for us. Him being the curse instead of us on the tree centuries ago. I'd love to be um, a church in, in a community where it's absolutely safe to be weak, to struggle and to hear the struggles of others and together for it to be okay. Not because we're okay by ourselves, but because God's redeeming love and sacrifice makes us that way. Let me pray for you. Lord, this evening, uh, it is a struggle that we run into all the time in our life. Sometimes it's personal. We're just trying to measure up. We're trying to measure up. We're trying to make it. There are, there are so many places in our regular life day to day where we're being measured, where there's objectives that we have to reach. And so sometimes, God, we bring that into our faith. But the reality is, is it's your spirit that's going to lead us and make us whole. And somehow we've got to give you the ability to do that, not only for ourselves, but for others. Lord, uh, help us, no matter what the neighbors say, to be people that are saying, you know, God, I'm going to lead with grace and care first, and then, uh, and then allow your directives, not only to direct me, but to, uh, but to help my brother and sisters to, uh, to become what you want them to, to be as well. Lord, we love you, and we thank you that no matter what, even when others around us may have given up or asked us what we're doing in the neighborhood, um, that, God, you always want us, not only in your neighborhood, but the promise of Scripture is in your house, because that's what you went away to prepare, Lord Jesus.
a house that we would be welcomed into someday. We love you and we thank you for that redemption. Amen.